Hey folks, quick programming note. We did have an opening segment initially for this episode. Uh, it ended up running quite a bit over time. And we decided to make it its own episode. We think it's a lot of fun. And we didn't want to cut away from it. It was actually kind of impossible based on the fact that it is the top 10 movies of 2015. And we're going to release that the second week of January where we were going to re- release our Predator 2 Remastered episode. So it'll get released on 110, that extra episode. We're still going to release the Predator 2 episode, but we thought this would be an easy way to get a new episode out there while we still work to kind of clean up that uh, Predator 2 track. As a programming note, next week will be New Year's Evil. That'll release on uh, 1231, and then on our normal week, 1-9-1-10, we'll release uh, the top 10 movies of 2015 with Joseph uh, Finn. And then we'll be back We'll be back January 17th with uh, Jim Cotto with Elizabeth Lundberg. So hope you're all having a wonderful holiday season, and we'll see you in the new year. Thanks for listening. I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Joseph Finn. And we love to watch... We love to watch Lois Lane fall off the wagon. It was December 24th when Hollis Avenue the dark. When I seen a man chilling with his dog in the park. I approached him very slowly with my heart full of fear. Looked at his dog, oh my god, a ill reindeer. But then I was yelling on the man at a beer. And a bag full of pretty 12 o'clock in there. So I turned my head a second and the man was gone. But he must have dropped his wallet back dead on the lawn. I picked the wallet up and then I took the pause. Took out the license and then it cold said Santa Claus. Hey dudes, how you doing? Welcome back, Joseph. Hey, happy to be here. It's like he never left. No one's ever happy to be here. <laughs> you do your time, then you get you get six months off, and then you come back. Yeah, Joseph was our second guest ever. He guessed with us on our uh, ninth episode when we were still called uh, "Listen to Our Podcast." Yep, and I have returned to uh, answer disparagements. <laughs> uh, I don't think the disparagements were directly related to you if you're talking about uh, our feelings on Home Alone in relation to yours <laughs> oh no I, I, I think I was directly mentioned in the last episode that uh, dropped today as we record this oh, oh I, yeah I haven't listened to the whole episode yet what did we say <laughs> <laughs> horrible horrible offensive things oh did we say you're going to be on next week's episode <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> we, were, we were we were jokingly calling out Joseph and Marcus for not having us on uh, Marcus's other show and for not being on Joseph. Oh yeah, show. that's that's right. <laughs> well, since one of our hosts has left the show recently, uh, there will be uh, opportunities for guest uh, appearances in the future for both for both of you. We're still working out what the hell the podcast is going to be in the new year. Who left? I would love to be on. Who left? Uh, Randy decided that uh, he's living in Toronto now, and he decided uh, he wanted to get involved in some more of the uh, local uh, community stuff, uh, so decided for time's sake uh, that he needed to cut down on us. He'll guess in the future. It's nothing acrimonious or anything. Oh. So for the moment, it's just uh, me and Amy. Yeah, so it it boils down to I'm here to, A, defend NCIS, and B, declare (laughs) uh, which of you was right about the ending of the movie. And, and what's cl- your answer? The conclusion is uh, they are among the, the thousand families that are trapped in uh, snow globes in Krampus's workshop, and they're living in a hellscape. 
Yeah, it's funny because I've actually gone over to Peter's side, uh, so he stops uh, calling me in the middle of the night and crying and through the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Joseph, um, can I have your cell phone number after this? No. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, this is uh, this is actually our last episode though that we're recording this year. So this is like our uh, Joseph is joining us on our actual Christmas episode, um, and Ooh. instead of coming and bringing. Uh, gifts and pleasantries. He is bringing uh, an agenda and a vendetta. And I, it should maybe tell you how we operate this podcast that he is the second guest to do that on this show. <laughs> so just like any person a- coming to a holiday gathering, I have yep. an agenda. Yep, exactly. <laughs> this is actually a, a talent retention technique. Uh, this is how we get our guests to stick around is, is just insult their honor and besmirch it until uh, they decide to come back and defend it. <laughs> it's, it's also how we get listeners because then our listeners are like, well, they mention a lot of people uh, individually on these episodes. Maybe they'll mention me. <laughs> maybe maybe I'll be called out most foul in yeah. the episode. <laughs> yeah. What do you mean you hate NCIS? You <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> just every once in a while. Bust out with your agenda. Oh. This scene is really great. It reminds me of this NCIS episode. You, you fuck faces. There's trouble down at the docks. <laughs> Let me tell you about the time that McNulty. No, anyway. Is that, that was a wire. That you, was a wire joke about. Yeah, the I'm docks. like, I'm Sorry. like, I, yeah. I, that sounds like a wire reference, but I'm in no position to call you out if that's incorrect because I've never seen an episode of NCIS. So, uh, so Joseph, before we get going uh, too far here, it has been six months since you've been on the show. Why don't you tell us three more things about yourself before we get into our final segment that we're recording for the year? Uh, let's see. Since uh, we've, since I've been here, uh, let's see. I'm employed again. That's nice. So awesome. I, actually, I actually have money again. That's nice. <laughs> um, on top see. of the podcast. I'm sure I've covered that I live just outside of Chicago. Um, I have one more thing that, that, about myself that actually is going to come up in relation to the movie, so I'm going to hold off the secret number three thing. Oh. Um, and uh, let's see. I have fewer siblings uh, than Aaron, who has ten. And uh, Peter, You're doing Peter have- math. I have nine. <laughs> what? <laughs> All right, I'm the oldest out of ten. You are the oldest out of ten. Yes. Uh, you have to forgive Joseph. He doesn't know how many siblings you have, Aaron. He was just guessing. <laughs> just like um, you. <laughs> yeah, I was just giving a rough field guess at four, but it's really, I have I have three siblings. Okay, so I'm in between you, the, you guys with uh, six. And the funny thing is, uh, uh, which of you has, uh, Aaron, is it you who has the two youngest are adopted? Uh, no, not the two youngest. They they are two brothers, but they are uh, one is the same age as my brother Tyler, and one is the same age as my brother Jacob. Okay, because I have two adopted brothers as well. They are the two older brothers. Then there is me and my four sisters. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I thought that was interesting. Yeah, That's a nice way to do it. Uh, you guys want to talk about? Uh, I forget what movie we're talking about. Christmas time is dark. Oh yeah, let's.
<laughs> All right, uh, Peter, you're five seconds. Cool. Uh, pervert makes Christmas bad. Okay. <laughs> 90 second recap is so there is these uh, women at uh, we say women I know they're supposed to be girls but they are they are people in their early 30s uh, <laughs> at, at a sorority and they are kind of celebrating pre-Christmas stuff and they get a call um, from a prank caller after we see some first person camera stuff someone walking around the house and the caller makes goes on for quite a long time and talking about some sexual stuff, what he wants to do to the girls. And then finally they're like, oh, this guy calls all the time. What a weirdo. And then they yell at him. And that's the end of that. So meanwhile, uh, the the voice that one of the girls in the house, Cheryl, goes upstairs and gets killed in a first-person shot by an unknown assail- assailant. Claire. Claire. Did I say Cheryl? Yeah. Claire gets killed by an unknown assailant. Uh, so from there, a few things happen. One, Claire's father comes to town uh, looking for her because everyone thinks that she has just went off with her boyfriend. So they're trying to track her down. Margot Kidder's character is drinking quite a bit. And Olivia Hussey's character is having a debate with her boyfriend, Peter, about uh, a baby that they had and whether she should get an abortion. So all these things are kind of going on throughout the mo- movie. Meanwhile, uh, people are continuing to disappear and get killed without anyone noticing. Uh, they're continuing to get... Uh, more and more creepy calls where it's not just someone saying sexual stuff, but a bunch of different voices. And it sounds like uh, you're in the head of a lunatic and different voices are coming out and saying stranger and stranger, uh, less clear things. Um, that kind of goes to the end of the movie for the most part, where uh, all of a sudden uh, they think Peter, who... Uh, as wants to have an abortion, Olivia Hussey does not want to have an abortion. Everyone decides Peter has been doing these killings. The police come to try to stop him, and they arrive too late to find that Olivia Hussey has uh, killed Peter at the same time. It appears that she has severely injured her. Uh, at the end of the movie, uh, it pans out that Peter was not the killer. And, hey, the killer who has been murdering people, we don't know who it is. We just know he is still out there uh, making calls. Yeah, that's a great 90-second recap. Um, So, yeah, Black Christmas is a movie that I've been watching uh, every Christmas for, I don't know, four or five years now. Uh, (laughs) Every Christmas Eve, I should say. Uh, And it's sort of become a tradition. It was also uh, Elvis's tradition to watch this movie uh, every Christmas time. Uh, His family still continues that tradition. So, yeah. well, it's, well, it's, well, back up here a second. Let let me talk about this. Elvis only died like three years after this movie came out. Every year. <laughs> 1975, 1974, 1976. <laughs> all of those years. And Lisa Marie Presley in between worshipping Xenu watches, make some time for this movie. Okay. It, Elvis is... Elvis is also fun because you can throw in any stray detail about Elvis and people will be like, yeah, it's, yeah it makes sense. Sure. Yeah. You, know who, yeah. uh, you, know, you know whose favorite movie this was, at least at one point? Steve Martin. Steve Martin. Did you go to Internet Movie Database for your <laughs> research? I, I remembered the – actually didn't do that much research for this one because I remembered a lot of the, the craziness about it from uh, just over the years. 
uh, yeah, Steve Martin loved this movie, and Olivia Hussey thought that she, he was um, referring to Romeo and Juliet when he told her, her that he was a big fan of hers. Oh, the, that she more specifically that she was in his favorite movie. Yeah, and he had said he'd seen it like I don't know twenty five times or something and he said like yeah it's my favorite movie uh which also you know back in the 70s and 80s is quite a feat uh to have watched a movie 27 or 28 times how quickly do you think olivia hussey backs away at that point yeah exactly she well he's a lunatic he told people that he is a wild and crazy guy <laughs> that's we true. didn't we didn't take him seriously guys but people could have been do- hurt but he also claimed to be King Tut, so... A lot of bad things going on up there. Which, which story are we going to believe? I think that those can are not mutually exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> he's a wild and crazy guy. Who thinks he's t- King Tut. Egyptian emperor. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Pharaoh. Yeah, I'd never seen this movie before. Um, I For some reason, I'd heard not great things about it, and I don't know what those people, uh, real or imagined, uh, were smoking, but extricate them from your life. Yeah, I I hope I have because uh, I don't know who told me this. Um, but yeah, I don't know. If I, maybe I got this confused with Silent Night, Deadly Night at some point. But I'd never seen it, and it was uh, both not what I was expecting and fucking fantastic. And uh, we'll we'll definitely get into the ending. But holy cow, do I love uh, where this? Not I shouldn't even say where this goes. Where it doesn't go uh, because. Yeah. That's that feels uh, revolutionary. Uh, Thirty-two years or forty-two years later. So, uh, Joseph, do you have any history with this movie? You've seen it before. Uh, we asked you to watch it for the show. Nope, I had never seen it before. It was kind of on my oh, it's one of the seventies slasher things, but I didn't realize just how early of a movie it was and just how it originated a bunch of the slasher tropes. Um, And somehow I did not know this is directed by Bob Clark, who would go on to direct A Christmas Story as well as the Porky movies. But, you know, nobody's perfect. Um, (laughs) And it's a really interesting movie. I mean, first off, it's a good movie. I I think it's a good movie with some weird flaws that we can get into later. I have some thoughts on on that. Um, That's great, because that's what we want on this podcast. Thoughts. (laughs) But only thoughts, not no thoughts that are not actually expressed. It's all telepathic. (laughs) But I like this a lot. I think it's a really strong slasher film that's fairly intelligent, except... There's a weird combination of good cop, bad cop in this movie. You know, sometimes in a slasher movie, the cops are just plain incompetent, right? But in this movie, the cops are actually kind of competent. But there's a couple things where you're like, wait a second here. And this is just going to have to go into the ending. Let me just bring this up real quick, talking about the ending of this movie. Where supposedly Peter's the killer... They they take his dead body out. They take Jess to the hospital. Nobody sweeps the house and finds the other two bodies that they've been supposedly looking for all this time. And the bodies are just up in the attic with the open attic attic door. It's a a whole thing. Like, you got to go up there. You got to pull down the ladder. It's not insulated. You know, I don't think I would blame the cops. I would blame (laughs) Canada and how cold it is to go up in one of those in the winter. It just drove me a little batty at the end. I'm like, wait, nobody went into the hanging wide open. The ladder is down. It's obvious that somebody's there. Joseph's like, they would never do this on NCIS. (laughs) (laughs) It just drove me slightly batty. 
and it is weird because yeah like you said if the attic were actually like uh one of those attics that's only accessible from inside of a closet and you had to pull it down and let's say like the string was pulled up and nobody ever went up there like yeah i get it but like people the, the house mom goes up to investigate the attic like it's accessible to everybody so you should just treat it like a third floor that's not well lit and not well insulated like <laughs> uh, but yeah I, but i do but speaking of her i do love the house mom the house mom is one of the best she's parts my favorite of the movie. she's my favorite character um <laughs> she's she's great yeah we'll we'll talk about her in a little bit but yeah this so this movie like you said, Joseph, I didn't realize how much this originated some of the slasher tropes that I think a lot of us kind of associate with Halloween. And that is not the case to the point where John Carpenter, when he heard Bob Clark say how he would make a sequel to this movie, that is what gave him the idea for Halloween. That seems like a huge uh, puzzle piece into where horror movies came from that somehow but beyond halloween this came out in canada anyways two weeks after uh texas chainsaw massacre was released so this like the other if you you know if halloween and texas chainsaw massacre are kind of the twin pillars of where we get our slashers movies uh this was kind of before all of that or at least in production the same time as uh texas chainsaw massacre so that it you know, it's not referencing it or or cribbing from it. Yeah, it's it's and they're completely different movies. I think like this movie is, uh, I think, kind of pretty. Uh, it has the same sort of soft focus mm-hmm. uh, lenses that Christmas Story and uh, uh, Dead of Night have. Dead of Night is his other uh, Bob Clark's other horror movie from the era. About a Vietnam soldier coming home after the war despite being dead. They both have a sort of soft focus lenses and the way that that, that uh, lens uh, catches the twinkle of Christmas lights is uh, sweetly nostalgic, I think, for a lot, of, a lot of people. So I think that's like one of the subtle ways that the movie undermines uh, Christmas mythologies and Christmas tropes. Um, but Texas Chainsaw Massacre's beauty is in its like raw degradation and uh they're very different movies but like they both took the slasher genre in in two directions that they would go in the future because this movie i can see a straight line from this movie to halloween uh, and i can see a straight line from texas chainsaw massacre to the trashier stuff of the 80s yeah absolutely Um, and here's where i admit that i don't particularly like texas chainsaw massacre but i can see its influence i like this movie Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad that you. Uh, I'm glad that you enjoyed this as an experience because I can yeah. see not. I can see this movie being a movie that if you don't like it, you hate it because it is grim and cynical, dark and mean. But mean in a very funny way. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you enjoyed this movie as well. Um, I don't appreciate that you are dropping these bombs of things that need further discussion. In a forum that we don't have time for, because <laughs> I really want to talk about now, why don't you like Texas Chainsaw Massacre? But we will save that uh, for another time. Sure. But uh, instead, let us mock Peter Smith. Oh, I thought you were going to stop at Peter, and I'm like, that is fine <laughs> by me. Um, Kier Dullia, who it, this was six years past 2001, and he's playing uh, Olivia Hussey's boyfriend. What the hell's going on there? You know what? It's so funny because I was watching the movie and I'm like, this guy looks like he's trying to be Malcolm McDowell. 
And then I read the trivia and found out they tried to get Malcolm McDowell for the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think Malcolm McDowell would have made more sense because, like, Keir Dahlia is, like, kind of handsome in 2001. But in this movie, he is so creepy. Yeah. And, he's, like... He feels like he's playing Malcolm McDowell specifically from the movie If. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yes, yes. Which I just watched for the first time this year. Yeah. Yeah. This movie, uh... I, I'd like to know Bob Clark's uh, – this movie, I'd like to know Bob, who Bob Clark was specifically inspired by because Peter, uh, Kierdelia's character, feels pulled directly out of an Italian giallo. Like this mad, uh, mad musician who, uh, you know, is so he, he's so career-focused, he's so driven, and then a woman drives him mad and there's a scene of him smashing the fucking piano with the music stand. Like – that feels straight out of a giallo to me. And the movie yeah. isn't as, like, heightened as most giallos, but there's specific moments that are like, holy shit, like, that that's where you were pulling a lot of these elements from. Well, and even the way they shoot him in certain shadows, especially early on, or actually the whole movie when he's by, like, the staircase and they're arguing about the abortion, um, like, they are shooting him in a slightly different movie than the rest of the cast. Uh, here's a question for you guys. When it comes to the piano smashing, did you feel like there is a scene missing there? I feel like it was a waste of a good piano. <laughs> <laughs> it just seems like there's a character beat missing there that you're not quite sure. Why is he smashing the piano? Is it over the abortion? It's it, it's kind of unclear there. He fucked up the recital. I think that's it's like uh, she, he was upset about the abortion. He fucked up the recital. And then um, I think the scene would be missing is like, him finding out that he didn't get something out of the yeah. recital. Yeah. For a 98 minute movie, it's a little subtle. Like I would have appreciated like an extra like 10 seconds, just him figuring out like what he lost because of the abortion. Right. Well, indefinitely because the abortion, I don't want to blame the, not, it's not even an abortion. The threat of the abortion yeah. fucked with his head so much. I don't want to like put this shit on Jess. <laughs> yeah. They are definitely going out of their way in both the way they shoot him and his character beats that we do see to be like, this is the murderer, and I assumed it was. Like, I assumed that he was going to be the killer. I was actually, at certain moments, annoyed with how obvious they were making it, and then, like, rationalizing it to myself, where I was like, well, it's 1974. Uh, and so the fact that all of that was a uh, red herring and a misdirection that got me really good was, was fantastic. Uh, before we move on to more specific stuff, though, I do want to take one step back and uh, talk about a broader theme of something that uh, Halloween does as well, that I think Halloween takes from this, that not many horror movies do, and it doesn't get talked about as much, even in reference to Halloween's influence, and that is, this is a very strange horror movie in that no one knows a horror movie is occurring until the last 15 minutes. Yep. Yeah. And and it, it is because... While they do eventually, at about the hour mark of a 98-minute movie, find a dead body out in the ice, no one knows there's a killer on the loose. Everyone thinks that the people that are gone are missing. They're not – with the exception of Claire, no one's even really looking for her. And even with Claire, they're like, she's probably out partying. She may be cheating on her boyfriend, that kind of stuff. Um, and so the horror mo – so it's, it's almost like a horror movie has – invaded a different drama movie which is such a great i love horror movies that successfully accomplish that because that is what a horror film would be like in real life where you don't know that this danger is out there and you're just living your life and going about your stuff 
and uh, not know that there's this uh, force or invader or whatever who's essentially going to rip itself into your life against your will and cause havoc. And not many movies even try to pull it off. It's very hard for movies that try to successfully pull it off because a lot of times the drama or other things that are going on are not interesting in their own right. Uh, Halloween pulls it off very well. Uh, but oh, even, yeah. but not to the extent as this movie, that this movie, you, you still have Loomis and Halloween who knows a horror movie is going on and trying to stop it. Uh, and people start figuring it out sooner. Black Christmas, it's not to the last 15 minutes that everyone's like, holy shit. Uh, there's a killer on the loose and it's this person's boyfriend and, oh, it's over. Uh, and that is fantastic. You know what I think is a really great example of that? Because that's a great point is Margot Kidder's role, Barb. Barb is in any other movie, Barb would be a drunk because of, uh, dealing with the grief of losing Claire, um, or because she's so tense for being hunted all the time. Barb is just a straight up fucking drunk. She starts saying like horrible things in the first scene. Like she's like talking back to the, uh, to the pervert caller. She's like, and then she says to the girl, she says, you can't rape a townie, which is, uh, makes everybody disgusted, uh, which is like a nice reaction. Cause like, that's, you know, that's not the movie making a joke. It's the character making a, a, a bad joke that nobody likes. Um, and Barb, Barb is like partying. She gives uh, a little kid booze. She's, uh, you know, not really joining in the hunt for Claire as much. Like she's kind of just an alcoholic, like an actual alcoholic and not because of the events of the movie. Yeah. Or at and, all. And yeah, there, they, there's a whole drama going on. There's the dad who doesn't like what's happened to his daughter now that she's at college. There's the whole uh, relationship breaking up in the middle of a pregnancy and how to handle that. And then there's the the alcoholic who is damaging relationships and her life while other people just sit and watch and don't know what to do. There is a whole nother movie going on that a horror movie invades. And that is amazing. And I cannot believe that this aspect of this movie has not been ripped off as much as, say, just... It's a first-person perspective, which is great, but... Yeah, but it's a movie that doesn't stop for the horror film that's taking place at the same time. Yeah, exactly. And, and it, I love that. And I kind of want to talk about Margot Kidder, who at times feels like she's in a different movie. Oh, yeah. But, <laughs> but then the horror film just kind of catches up to her. Yeah, yeah. Her death feels particularly sudden. Like, you feel like she's going to have more interaction with the killer, particularly because she taunts him early on and, like, all of that. Instead, it's just, like, a really beautifully staged murder with the the crystals, the crystal um, figures on the nightstand and the, the unicorn horn uh, intercut with the carolers singing. Like, she gets a beautiful death, but it's not a death that... Uh, satisfies some sort of character arc. And that's what part of the reason it's so scary is like Barb didn't get to like, oh, it's you. Oh, you're a pathetic little piece of shit. Like Barb didn't get to get in any of her, her barbs. Her, <laughs> her trademark her, kidderisms. Yeah. her Yeah. She's, <laughs> <laughs> she's a real kidder in this movie. Uh, and uh, yeah. I'm going to edit it out. Don't worry, Joseph. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she, she doesn't – you're right. She doesn't really get to to have that sort of arc that you might expect and it makes it better because it's a horror movie. She's, she's the prime example of the horror movie invading her life suddenly 
and violently and abruptly because, yeah, she's just doing her own thing until all of a sudden she's murdered. And then that's the end of. Yeah. And, and her and her her death scene is um, is, I think, the best in the movie. I would probably also put it if I was to ever make a top five death scenes in horror movies, it would if not on that list, cracking that list because it is uh, gorgeously shot. Uh, the juxtaposition of the carolers works really well. And uh, I really like, I, I really like the way they use that kind of first person fisheye perspective to really uh, make you close and uncomfortable during all of the death scenes, but they, they use it best here, I think. And it's cut against what Peter talk, was talking about earlier with uh, filming the movie, those beautiful soft-focused shots, specifically a shot that I'm thinking of of uh, Olivia Hussey as Jess standing in the doorway watching the carolers, which is the, just before everything goes sideways for her. She just thinks a couple of people are missing at this point. And there's just this yeah. beautiful shot of her in the doorway with the Christmas lights around her, and she's looking at the carolers, and it's very nice, even though she's a little apprehensive still. It's just a really nice shot. And then everything goes to hell. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's that's sort of the crux of the movie, is, is that people just think that this is like a normal, like... Uh, you know, a little girl was abducted and killed. That's so that's so terrible. Like, but it's not our lives. You know, it's not like there's a mad killer on the loose that's going to come after us. Instead, it's just like, well, Claire's missing. You know, who should we hold up with? Like, they tell us that Claire is basically like their version of a good girl. Like, she's she's not much of a drinker, but she does have a boyfriend and she does have, uh, you know, like uh, 60s like uh, posters on her wall with like uh, the, the peace symbol spelled out and in naked bodies, whatever you call that, that particular image. I um, call that pornography. Yeah, she does have <laughs> pornography, uh, which makes the her house hurt. mother covering that up is one of the best pieces in the movie. <laughs> oh, she's great. She's great. Um, so she, she so to her father's standards, she's like. She's becoming like a dirty girl, but to the rest of them, she's like kind of clean. Like she's she's staying with her one boyfriend. She doesn't, you know, cheat on her boyfriend. Uh, she seems to be happy. She's not much of a drinker. She goes to class. Like it's not like Claire to just disappear like that. Like Claire's a good person to have disappear early on uh, for that reason. And her, what do you guys think of the the juxtaposition with Claire just popping up, smothered? Uh, with the plastic bag over and over again. Again, that, that kind of close-up fisheye lens uh, makes makes all the murder scenes very visceral, and it's it's jolting in the immediacy of when it's occurring, and then it lingers with you after the ending has revealed that we never saw whose hands those were. Oh, yeah. I feel, I feel a little bit like they maybe go to the Claire strangled in the chair one or two times too much. Because after a while, it's like, okay, is this guy going back to visit the body? Well, I, th I think he's kind of living in the attic. Yeah, it just seems like maybe we're just cutting in these shots, you know, one or too many times. I, I don't know. It, it's entirely possible this it's completely works, and I'm just, you know, uh, thinking it overly, uh, thinking it over too much. But it's the shot on the poster. It, Get it in the movie. <laughs> right, which it is on the poster. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I do love this sort of. I've been thinking about this a lot, especially watching After Silent Night, Deadly Night, um, and watching a couple other slasher movies. I do kind of love when slasher movies don't just have you know 
Billy gets his head torn off with the chainsaw and then they cut to the next scene and nobody mentions Billy again and they never show Billy's corpse again. Like I kind of love when slasher movies uh, or, you know, these these sort of murder thrillers uh, return to the inciting incident or they return to the different people that have been lost along the way to kind of remind you of the stakes and not just have these these people be like, throwaway murders um and i think this is a perfect way to deploy it because it's every time that you're like people are getting hope that they're like oh yeah well then we'll we'll get this game together and we'll find claire and it's like nope swinging body completely strangled <laughs> like completely smothered i mean um yeah it's it, it was a nice punctuation mark and i think the sort of like repetitiveness of it uh which i think obviously can come off as repetitive uh the repetitiveness it worked for me specifically on that sort of like humanist level where it's like Somebody died. Like this is an, this is an actual huge thing that happened, and will continue to haunt even the survivors of this for the rest of their lives. You know, you bring a re- up a really interesting point too, because the fact that they do take the death seriously, uh, they don't know it's a death of Claire at the time, but the whole movie, the what's going on in the background is th- they're searching for Claire. Like they are. The community takes it seriously. There's search parties. That goes to the very end of the movie where Bob and Doug McKenzie show up at the sorority house uh, (laughs) and ask a few questions about where Claire could be and what the search party is doing. Everyone takes it really seriously. Most horror movies kind of do that. This person's dead. Everyone reacts. And then the movie moves on. And I think having that the fact that no one knows it's a horror movie allows that kind of stretch of a community in peril searching for this missing girl be able to not not just uh misdirect everyone from what's going on so they're not seeing what's in front of their faces but also take seriously what most horror movies uh discard very quickly or just have the corpses come back just to be like a spook like a haunted house spook for the the main girl um where she's like oh oh tammy died in the garage or like oh claire died in my bedroom like it's fine if a movie does that but that's um not as humanizing as having this like poor girl in the attic that they're constantly returning to the tragedy of it and not just in the tragedy of like somebody was murdered but like that she left people behind and, and, you know, you talk about the house, and this is something I wanted to bring up, um, and I teased this earlier, there are three new things about you. Uh, <laughs> for two years, I went to college in Minnesota, down in Winona, and this movie uses really well um, the feeling of college students are leaving the night before, maybe the night before Christmas, it might be a couple days before Christmas, I'm not sure if they're entirely clear on that, Um and the house sort of like is great. Finals are ending. Like, so some right. people can leave early, some people can leave a little later. And the house is gradually emptying out, and I think that really adds to the kind of creep factor as Jess thinks at one point, oh, I'm just the only person left. Everybody else is uh, out hooking up with a girlfriend, or boyfriend, or uh, uh, you've got Margot Kidder sleeping upstairs. And I'm like, that really kind of adds to the atmosphere of the whole thing. Because in the beginning, there's like uh, 20 or 30 girls in that uh, in the drunk fest at the beginning, right? Yep. Oh, yeah. And they just kind of all filter out. No, it's a really good, it's a really good point. Um, it does really give that sense. I remember very well. I remember I was in college. I was living in a sorority's attic, and people kept leaving. Uh, it was super weird. 
It's very lonely for you, I bet. Very lonely. I didn't kill anyone. I just needed a place to stay. <laughs> um, but I wanted someone to talk to. And everyone just was gone. needed a place to hook up. Yeah. No, it was weird. It also gives us it Hook yeah. up. <laughs> it it also it also gives the sense of and I don't think I've ever seen a movie get this right, uh, Joseph, which is the Oh yeah, we have to all go back and hang out with our parents for a couple weeks. I better get one last night with my girlfriend now. Yep. <laughs> or yeah. get your snoot on. Yeah, exactly. It's a it's a weird thing that uh, is is very specific to college, where you're all kind of like living huddled way too close together, and like it, the fact that they lose track of Claire wouldn't make sense if they were all on a camping trip. Because in a camping trip, like towards the end of the day, you're like, "Well, is Bill eating with us?" Like if it's if it's this <laughs> sort of night, you're like. Uh, Oh, like they just went off and did their own thing. Like, there's too many fucking people for yeah. me to keep track of. It, 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 is she cheating on uh, her PETA representative with some other guy we don't know? Uh, that guy's fur coat is fantastic. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, yeah. Who's what's the what's the other what's uh, Claire's boyfriend's name? Well, that's what I'm talking about. I forget his name. <laughs> Yeah, I forget his name. <laughs> no that guy. Th- yeah, that guy is. Uh... He's in. He plays the lead in the Brew, which is the only other thing I know him from. Yeah, uh, yeah, he does. But he, yeah, He's very seventies looking. <laughs> yeah, but he, he, that fur coat, like it's like a putty from Seinfeld fur coat that he walks around, and somehow the movie doesn't become about his fur coat. That's an amazing feat. Like <laughs> the fact that it just doesn't turn into, hey, I. Is that is that a real thing you're going for style wise? Like I know it's the seventies, but I've never seen anyone wear a coat like that. <laughs> that is a guy named Chris uh, Chris, who is played by a guy named Art Hindle, whose last credit of going to Wiki is Sicilian Vampire. <laughs> my favorite <laughs> Italian horror movie. As, From 2015, and oh my god. As Detective Star- Dominic Supre. <laughs> oh my god, guys. No, no, James Kahn, Paul Servino, Robert Loggia. All of our favorites. Okay. How have we not seen this? Okay, everybody come back later. Everyone take two hours. I'll see you guys at 4 a.m. And we're going <laughs> to record a thing Amanda on Sante, Michael Pare, Eric Roberts. Oh, my God. Daryl Hannah. I guess we finally answered the question, where are they now? They're in this movie. They're <laughs> yes. in Sicilian Vampire. True story about that guy. Uh, that was his own fur coat from home, and he still has it today. <laughs> God. <laughs> I don't know why I was so obsessed with that because it was uh, just a weird moment where you're watching something and go, is someone going to say something to him about this? Was that just like an eccentric fashion thing of the time that nobody batted an eye at like when they were shooting the movie? But two years later, it was funny. <laughs> Must have it, been looked a like he, it looked like he should have been in a 1920s uh, football movie going, huck and chuck and hook a puck a rah, 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 <laughs> with like a straw hat on. It's like if you watched a movie and a, one of the characters was just wearing a cape and then no one ever said anything about it. You'd be like, why is no one mentioning the cape? It's driving me crazy. That's how I felt about the coat throughout the movie. I mean, if it had been a coat down to like his knees or something, it would have been much more, you know, much less weird. But somehow that it was only went down to like <laughs> <Yeah>. his waist. <laughs> that was just, what? What's going on here? Yeah, it's casual luxury, you know? 
He's not. Yeah. He's, it's not a robe. He's not. He's not lounging. He's going between. I don't know. Whatever Chris's do. Like I know I say this once a day at minimum, so it's probably losing its power. But I just gotta say, Canada, you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and this movie is so Canada. It's so times. Canadian. I want to talk about actually something very specific Canadian about it that I had to look up because. This movie has let's let's get this out of the way. This movie talks a lot about abortion in a way that uh, movies today are scared to do. Peter's character is the uh, consummate pro-life person who, even though Olivia Hussey's character is uh, completely flat stomach, I mean that that Zyga mu- must be no more than two weeks old tops. Uh, he's like, it's a baby, and if you do this, it'll be murder. And I'm like, huh? It's 1974 couple years after Roe versus Wade in the United States, where was Canada at on this issue? And it turns out they were way ahead of us. So, because it's, it's – they were in the sense that there was never a law banning it and they made it legal countrywide in 1969. So, six – five years before this movie came out. As long as a committee of doctors uh, uh, signed off on it. True, but it wasn't – I mean, I don't know. You know, the thing about it, and that's why I want to discuss it, is when you're seeing a movie like that – you don't know from a time like this, and especially in a country that you don't know the history of women's rights as much as you may your own country like I do, it was hard to tell what the movie's perspective on him as a character was. And that's why I wanted to look up more because is is the movie on his side and think that he has a legitimate point or think this guy's a loon who should be, you know, who's one step away from like picketing abortion clinics? Well, he does smash up a he does smash up a piano, so he's obviously a loon. Yeah, I guess on this issue, where was the movie siding with him on? And I I agree that that this what they were trying to say there was on the loon side of it. But again, you just never know when you're talking about uh, a political issue from a country you don't you weren't involved in forty two years ago. Right. Um, I was just gonna say, uh, Dawn of the Dead in two th- in nineteen seventy eight had uh, a very similar situation. With the main character of the movie, the the Francine in, in Dawn of the Dead from four years later, uh, also had a sort of like, well, I'm in a shitty relationship and I'm going to tell you I don't want to keep this fucking baby. And then there's this like conversation where Peter's like, uh, we can get rid of it if you want. Uh, so, like, I feel like maybe back then, like... <laughs> maybe back then we were better off in some ways because at least we were having the conversation uh whereas like even juno from like 2006 or 2007 was controversial for her even even considering having an abortion and she considers it for like 10 minutes of movie time yeah five minutes of movie time and and they couldn't even say it knocked up that's why john hill's character has to say susmortion and pretend it's because a character can't hear uh, the word. And that was that was 2007. Now, a lot of that is because we actually got, as a country, way more conservative about abortion because the religious right in the 80s kind of used that as their – as their call to, as their call to action. Like, this is how we can get people motivating to the, po- the polls. Like, that was, like, decided on as, oh, we could use this issue that some people don't like. Uh, I mean, back then it was only the Catholics that were against it. The For the most part, most of the Christian denominations did not have – as strong of a stance as many of them do today. So uh, that was a very American thing that was going on. So, again, I was I was interested to find out where Canada was in 1974. And it sounds like they were super polite about it. 
As always. Uh, if I may swerve to a specific plot point. Do you guys think the little girl who dies, or the teenager, they're never quite sure exactly how old the uh, daughter is that the woman is reporting. Uh, is she killed by the same person as the guy in the house? I don't know. I think it, so. It, it just seems a little odd because it's... Is this part of the same story? I think so because I think it's uh, it's sort of thing where this small town, everybody in this small town feels so safe. When the murders start happening, a lot of people don't even think they're part of the story. <laughs> like, I think that was just him, like, either trying something out before he killed, he moved on to Claire. Like, we don't really know that much about the killer. I'm sure the remake spells out in no uncertain terms <laughs> why the killer <laughs> kills. But I, I always associated it with him, like, that was his, his attempt, and then he, he liked it, and then he moved on to just haunt this house next. I like the idea. I, I don't know what the movie's trying to say. I th- I could probably be convinced either way. I like the idea better that it's unconnected, just because I think with the amount of answers you get regarding the killer that we don't know anything about him, we don't know his motivation – um, I like that there's not this other murder out there that he committed, that he kind of exists in this entity in the house or in, around the house that we never get a full picture of. And I think even though we don't learn much about the person who's murdered, if I had to choose uh, in my headcanon or whatever, I like the idea that that's disconnected because the less we learn about him, the more interesting it is for me. Yeah. And I will note, I just looked at the remake uh, wiki, and uh, it has the dumbest uh, pre-story for the killer possible, and nobody should ever read it. It has a fucking... <laughs> wait, it has a pre-story for a killer that the whole point is, no, you don't know anything about him? Yep. I would... Great I would like job, to see the Hollywood. <laughs> I would like to see the remake, just because occasionally these remakes surprise me. Like, I loved the Evil Dead remake, when I thought it was going to be terrible. That one, like the idea of explaining the the origins of this killer just sounds totally unappealing to me. The lead four people in this movie, I have to note, this is from ten years ago. It's the same cast of Sicilian Vampire. (laughs) (laughs) It's Katie Cassidy from Arrow, Michelle Trachtenberg, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, and Lacey Chabert. Well, now that it has Mary Elizabeth Winstead in it, I'm definitely going to have to watch it just to see... What she was like pre-Scott Pilgrim. I liked her thing remake. <laughs> future episode. Definitely future episode. Um, uh, one... You can leave me out of that one. <laughs> because uh, you just want to go home and watch it. <laughs> <laughs> we should do a whole month on thing movies Th- that riffed on the thing. And we'll even do that X-Files episode ice. <laughs> or, um, uh, or, I guess, movies that Joseph doesn't want to join us for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Also a theme. Joseph Free is the way to be. That'll be the month. Joseph Free July. (laughs) Uh, Can we talk about John Saxon in this movie? Because he is awesome, as always. Yes. The cops in this movie are uh, a specific kind of incompetent. Because, like, they even lay out layers where, like, the beat cops are morons. But the detectives are smart, and then the detectives even take giggly. years to get their, their shit together. <laughs> like, uh, they, it takes them so long to figure out that there's an upstairs phone in the house. It takes them so long to figure that out, let alone check out the attic like we just referred to. It takes them forever. Which Yeah, oh, and that's a quick aside, I think, to the audience, because at this point we know that he's in the house, and I'm assuming we've put together that... 
he's calling from inside the house. So that kind of like, no, there's no other phone in the house. There's a different phone line. Yeah, that can't be it. And the way that they say it, dismiss it, it feels weird because as the audience, I don't think we that's not new information for us. But the fact that the characters have figured it out and then dismissed it doesn't make them look like real fucking idiots. <laughs> yeah. So uh, just a side note. Have, did you guys grow up with the uh, the call was coming from inside the house stories at all? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Scary tell. Uh, scary stories to tell in the dark, man. Yeah, I read. I read like two or three of those volumes growing up, and then also I had other friends that were passing around stories about the call was coming from inside the house. It scared the shit out of me as a kid. Um, I'm just old. En- I'm just old enough to remember uh, uh, Carol Kane in When a Stranger Calls. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Which is one of the creepiest openings for a movie ever. Yeah, I heard dozens of variations on that story growing up. And to see, Joseph, this is kind of an interesting happenstance because not every movie is based off of, like, uh, urban myth and folklore. This movie is riffing off of uh, urban myth in the same way Candyman as Candyman was. Uh, with the whole look in the mirror and say Candyman three times, it's the same sort of, uh, you know, urban mythologizing that happens. And the movie sort of like extrapolates that, that on that and sees how far it can stretch that sort of, yeah, that's that sort of mything that all of us did as kids. And uses it more as a mechanism for communication uh, than a twist. So, yeah, yeah and this movie has a really cre- great scene where the, the guy that's fucking poor... Uh, cop that has to work in the uh, the, the the television or the te- the telephone uh, station. He's just like running around checking to look which like terminals are clicking. That's a that's got to be a terrible job. Yeah, welcome to 1974 in that scene. Yeah, and Canada today. <laughs> yeah, I, that'd be, that'd be, I would like the Black Christmas remake if they. Uh, <laughs> I like the Black Christmas remake today if they just. Um, went down to the station and the guy calls and then he just like looks at a screen. He's like, yeah, he's calling from inside the house. <laughs> it's like super lazily and bored. Uh, by the way, the, by the way, the remake apparently gets to be even more Canadian because at one point one of the victims is scalped with ice skates. Oh my God. They really were running out of ideas, huh? <laughs> <laughs> sounds, like, so sounds like they didn't even use the good ideas presented in the movie. Uh, yeah. as long, yeah. So as long as we're talking about the phone calls, though... A couple things. One, they are super, super fucking creepy. Uh, And a little aside that we could move past or expand on, uh, the fact that they keep referring, the the character keeps referring to himself as Billy makes me think that this should be a shared universe with Silent Night, Deadly Night. I know. That was kind of weird that they both had, uh, you know, perhaps an antagonist named Billy. People call him Billy, but like he's got some sort of multiple personality. He's talking to Billy. Agnes and Billy are talking, right? Yeah. It's not even necessarily just a person because those voices that he does are distinct enough that if you were to tell me Bob Clark later said, no, it's supposed to be a supernatural event or a coven of people or something like that, I'd go, yeah, that also works for me just as much as a single person. Yeah, I I, I would agree, though. I just yeah. I love this, this multiple personality like – so much so that it's Bob Clark, some other actor, and then another. There's Bob Clark and two actor, two other actors. Um, one of which is a woman, and he couldn't re- <laughs> he couldn't remember who did uh, one of the voices. It was one of the actresses on set. Yeah, he couldn't remember who the woman was, the woman actress that did the 
the, the voice, which is a real bummer. I kind of like yeah. that. It kind of preserves uh, an air of mystery, unless you want it to be <laughs> properly credited or paid. Yeah, like at least it'd be kind of fun if like years later, it'd be like, hey, guess what? I did this in this movie. But now they all can lie and say it was them. Um, so, uh, yeah, but the, the phone calls are super creepy. I will say the first one uh, strains credulity a little bit and that they just let this go on forever. They're like, well, she's yeah. calling me a C word. Let's wait. Let's see if this turns around. Let's let him finish. I don't know if people did this in the telephone days, but I could totally see this based off of like how people respond to their own internet abuse <laughs> where they're just like yeah i mean i can tell he's just going to keep talking shit about me but there's 17 more paragraphs <laughs> i i could totally see that in a modern context i don't know if you were actually paying for the call and paying quite a bit for the call if you were like yeah i'm gonna sit here and just take this is he tossing uh, no he's calling from upstairs sorry i was gonna make a joke about is he tossing uh, loonies into the uh phone booth yeah <laughs> he's like uh 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 Hold on. <laughs> oh. Operator, can you reverse these charges? Yeah. In 10 <laughs> seconds, your payphone will expire. <laughs> A boat? Uh, will you accept these charges? Yeah, I, I love the abuse. <laughs> I, I I could see it going either way. I I could then again Barb is on the line and Barb is just like getting a kick out of yelling back at him. Well, she kind of does though that thing of like Hold on, let's let's let him get really dark and weird, and then all of a sudden is like, now you've got. I don't remember what pushes her over the. She says edge. you creep. <laughs> yeah, th- she she finally has too much, but everyone is just kind of like it, it. It starts out weird, and then it gets like aggressively sexually assaulty, and everyone's still just as like, well, now hold on. Uh, let's, yeah, there was a let's line, let him go for I- a while. Like they, I think they could have got, especially because that first call doesn't even hint at the strange and bizarre turn that the calls will take later on. I feel like they kind of let it go on a little bit unnecessarily and unbelievably too far. Uh, To sort of highlight, yeah, I don't know if it's unbelievable or not. I sort of can see why the characters will let it go on. I could see a couple of the characters, a couple of characters in the room are just like, hang up, why are you still listening? So that's kind of why I I could ground it in that. Um, And I only repeat this line because it's uh, fucking disgusting and I want to highlight this. But uh, he he says stuff like, you're pretty pink cunt. Which is something that when you hear, if you're like a normal person, you hear it like makes your like lips curl. Like you're like, oh God, like <laughs> stop talking. <laughs> like it's just a disgusting turn of phrase. And apparently actually when they were on set, the what the message to them was like way less dirty. Uh, it was just like creepy noises and shit. And then Bob Clark went back and like re-recorded way, way worse stuff. So who knows what they were actually hearing for the scene, but... Yeah, what did you, what did you guys make? Yeah, it's it's disgusting. I, I'm it's not really gross. Um, so effective, but like, uh, can this end, please? Which I guess is probably the point of it. Uh, it's just a little frustrating when they have a mechanism to end the call to end that madness at any point. But what do you guys think of all the subsequent calls where it gets super weird? And I think probably the creepiest part of the movie is how not so these calls get. I think they're effective, but I think like that first one is like, 
why aren't you just hanging up at that point? I mean, there is one there is one scene, obviously, where they're trying to trace the call, uh, two of them, actually, and you understand why they're still on the phone, but there's at least a couple more in there. I forget exactly how many calls there are. And you're like, why are you still on this phone call? Just hang up. Yeah, late in the movie, I'm like, well, as soon as, yeah, as soon as Barb's not in control, like, I, I'm like, yeah, just hang up the call. You don't have to do this. <laughs> I think it makes a see. That's the thing, though, is I think it makes a little more sense on the later calls because it's less direct abuse and threats and more just like, what the fuck is he saying? I think I believe on all the subsequent calls that they would be more like, okay, where is this going? I kind of agree with you in the sense that it's more. Before, obviously, they tell them, like, you have to stay in the line or else we can't trace it. It's more interesting. I would stay in the line longer if I was still figuring out the situation. It's sort of like how a lot of um, Trojan horse spam works and Trojan horse viruses work, where all they want is to, like, entice you enough to click on the, the package. Sometimes literally. Yeah, sometimes literally, you <laughs> fucking pervert. <laughs> um, but uh, they all they're trying to do is ent- is confuse you enough for you're like, I have to figure out what this is. Like, trying to entice some sort of inner curiosity. Yeah. So, I guess we're done talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I love the calls in the movie. I think that they're... they're uh, intensely effective and i think that the fact that we don't end up seeing the voice behind the calls makes it even better we just see aspects of billy or agnes or whatever you want to call this personality um the shadow would be a good name for it uh but it was taken years later the the fact that we see you know his eye uh during the scene when uh jess is upstairs and we just see his eye between the crack and the door um which one little fact uh, on re- on the second time I watched it a bunch of years ago, I caught that. I was like, "Oh, she should know that the killer isn't Peter because Peter has blue eyes and the killer has brown eyes." Yeah, is she really taking the time to look into this guy's eyes and notice what color they are? I'm more concerned I mean, that Peter is. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys? Is that not something people pay attention to? I don't know. Maybe I'm a weirdo. Maybe I'm a weirdo. It is. It is a weird thing that I just don't notice. I think. I don't know. It's totally possible. Maybe Jess is just like you. But that's something that I noticed like pretty quickly when uh, I was watching it. And I was like, I think you'd know if that was your boyfriend or not. But still, she felt threatened enough by her boyfriend in the basement. And her boyfriend was acting erratic and crazy enough that and she was paranoid enough that like I could totally see even if she knew that her boyfriend wasn't the killer. Like, he just broke a window to get in the basement with me. Like, get the fuck away from me. Yeah. I could see the ending still making sense, even if she knows he's not the killer. So I do want to talk a little bit about the ending. I actually want to kind of circle around before we get there. And obviously, Peter, this was a, this is an uh, annual rewatch for Peter. I loved it. Joseph, you said some other things didn't really work as well for you. What what were some areas that you thought, you know, just didn't didn't hit that right note? I know you liked it quite a bit. I'm not trying to be like, why do you hate things? But I'm I'm interested in a <laughs> uh, different different uh, perspective than our probably over the top fawning praise. I think it's I think I've pretty much gone through them all at this point. It's like the weird combination of competence and incompetence from the cops, which is just odd. There's the missing girl that might be related, might not be related. I'm not sure if that's just 
padded in or it's actually related to the rest of the story. And then there's just nobody looks through the goddamn attic. That's <laughs> going to bug the hell out of me. It's like, it's right there, people. Look in the damn attic. There's two bodies there. Uh, that's about it. Besides that, I really like the movie. Yeah, I think if they, I think if the attic were more like, yeah, like I said, tucked in a closet or something, I can understand that because the cops would just be like, it's a storage room, whatever. <laughs> but, right. uh, but it, since it's so accessible, I like the idea that I know we're doing this movie next week, so maybe this is a bad thing. I like the idea that they're the same cops from New Year's Evil, uh, where <laughs> when they see something they don't like, they just say gross and move away from it. <laughs> um, they're like, yeah. Maybe that's why I'm not noticing the cops' incompetence in this movie, because the New Year's Evil cops are the worst fucking cops I've seen in a movie in a very long time. <laughs> the, oh, the poster yeah. for this movie, it's such a ripoff of uh, uh, Clockwork Orange. It's driving me nuts. Oh, right. yeah. Holy shit. That poster is a ripoff of Clockwork Orange. <laughs> they were like, if we can't get Malcolm McDowell, we're going to get us the rest of the movie. Everyone wanted right. Malcolm McDowell. No one got him. You know who got him? You get If. You get Clockwork Orange. You get In Good Company. You get Star Trek Generations. That's it. <laughs> oh, goodness. In Good Company, number one. <laughs> He's the boss. He fired that one kid from the 70s show. Um, but Did yeah, no I, one see In Good Company besides me? No. Topher Grace? Yeah, that's, that's who he fired. <laughs> okay. It's the Tove? The Tove. To Tover's best, best, best part is just... Running uh, towards the house in Interstellar for an hour saying, uh, he's almost here. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, the ending of this movie. So, let's let's talk about it a little bit. I can't think of another movie that never bothers to reveal who is doing the killing. Uh, in so many of these slasher movies, uh, horror movies in general, whodunit mysteries, for the most part, genre after genre... If you don't find out exactly who it is, maybe they made you think it was someone and then there's a misdirect and it's like, oh, it's actually this person. Rarely do they give you almost nothing to go off of, leave you to think about what you've seen, and then never even have a sequel. It's just out there. Or at least you have, you know, suspects. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. This is This is just... A, we saw his eye, we saw his hands, and that is all you will ever get. And I love that he's this, we see um, certain sides of him. So we see this like sort of like toddler-like sort of like crying child as he's like rocking the, the chair with Claire's body in it, which is super fucking scary. But we also see this like raving loon this like ravenous animal who's just like throwing his weight against the door as joss is locked in the basement and it's just these shots of the bolt holding implying the bolt might not hold <laughs> and it's so clever that they just have the bolt actually just hold every time he bashes against it because in any other movie you cut to the bolt and you're like mm, it's gonna it's gonna break right it's gonna it's gonna break and then nothing he just stops banging against the door. So you see all these different aspects of the character. These like this like just vicious animal, uh, but also this like hunter in the dark. And so it's painting a picture of of this like lunacy, but it's not really like interested in giving you a good reason for why the killer did what they did. And I think it's almost it, it's it's way creepier, but it's also like if they gave you a reason, would that reason really be satisfying? 
Like, I, I, I get that a lot of people from a traditional storytelling arc, particularly going back to murder mysteries and stuff, stuff that Joseph is probably way more familiar with than we are. The traditional murder mysteries, like finding out who was the red herring and who was the real killer in the end is always, you know, part of the satisfaction. That's why Murder in the Orient Express is so fun because it, it throws you on your head of what you ex- how you expect that movie to end or that book to end more specifically. Um, and this is sort of saying like, would you, would any answer have been satisfying? Like an angry, would an angry boyfriend really have been interesting to you? Like it doesn't fucking matter. I think it's a great point. Right. And there's no uh, detective who's gra- gathering everyone into the drawing room explaining exactly what happened with with flashbacks pointing out exactly how each murder happened. Yeah. And yeah, I just I, I maybe this is just something we've been learning about me throughout this uh, podcast. But yeah, I like any any effective movie that uh, not only doesn't uh, show but doesn't tell. Uh, I tend to like I like letting you stew in your own. Uh, theories in a way that uh, is keeping with the movie. I think movies do it poorly when they just don't explain stuff because they don't know the answer. I think there is an answer somewhere in this movie that we just we never saw those scenes that gave the answer, and that is incredibly satisfying in its uh, unsatisfaction. Yeah, even if I do still wonder, did nobody ever go into the basement before in this place? <laughs> Basements, attics, too cold in the winter. Um, uh, as we kind of go to final thoughts and wrap this thing up, um, you know, do we have any scenes that we didn't get a chance to, to talk about? I, I feel bad that we said early on that, uh, the house marm was two of our favorite characters. We didn't really say much about her, but... Well, she's one of our favorite characters. It yeah. sounded like a fat joke for a second. Oh, no, I meant uh, both Joseph... <laughs> yeah. so- sorry, everyone. I meant both Joseph and myself uh, thought very highly of her uh, as a character. She's great because she's trying to do a house marm routine that you would normally find in this movies when other people are there, but it's all it's all an act. She is as body and likes to get down as much as the, the sorority girls. Uh, I do want to talk about her scenes with Mr. Harrison. Yeah. Uh, uh, she Captain, wants to fuck what's that guy. Claire's Claire's father, who is, you know, completely stick up his butt, but she doesn't really particularly give a damn. She would like to just get rid of him so she can head out to her sister's place for Christmas. Yeah. (laughs) Every scene she has with him, she is just having none of it. But she's got to keep up looking for his daughter because uh, the daughter's off somewhere with a boyfriend, but got to keep up with with that. There's a moment when he walks back down the stairs and she flips him off to his back, and it just kills me she, when she gets caught too uh that her her facade as the nice old lady just trying to protect the kids is kind of derailed that is uh, it's kind of fantastic where she's like ah oh, shit <laughs> guess i won't be having him over tonight <laughs> uh, i wish that uh i was gonna say is i wish that she had her own little movie you just see where she goes yeah, it was it was too bad that she was gone so quickly. Although again, she she definitely makes sense in keeping with the movie's attempt to not make sure that the the characters are not like looking for people cuz to be honest, no matter how cool your house marm would be, if she disappeared suddenly, no one would be like, "Where is Agatha?" Yeah, exactly. "Where's my RA?" 
Yeah. <laughs> my Ari used to be so cool when they were around all the time. Yeah, I haven't heard Hootie and the Blowfish blasted from his dorm room in at least a couple weeks. Wait, so what, what is what is uh, her job, though, as this, like, house mom? Because she oh, wants uh, to hide back, her back drinking. In the day, back in the, uh, the oh, I'm sorry, do you mean what her job is supposed to be or what it actually is? However you would like, like to answer this question, Joseph, because <laughs> I am just curious. Uh, Back in the day, this is this was really falling apart in the seventies. Back in the day, uh, colleges were much more uh, what they called in loco parentis, in the place of parents, where the, the, you know you wanted to keep the students from uh, getting too too uh, too much drinking, too much whatnot. So you would have house moms. RAs are kind of a leftover from this, uh, and it's kind of gone now. But they were basically that you wanted to keep the uh, the students in the straight and narrow. This is back when you had like you had to sign in and out. Of of, uh, out of uh, dormit- dormitories, this sort of thing. You know the uh, bit in uh, uh, Blues, not Blues Brothers, um, Animal House, where they're picking up the girls at the uh, women's college, mm-hmm. and they have to sign them out and whatnot. That's th- that's that sort of thing. Ah, uh, gotcha. Because pretty I, much when she shows up and then she's trying to hide her drinking from everybody, I was like, "What is she doing?" So she's just trying to look respectable in front of them. Yeah, that's right. what she's there for to be to be their monitor. Um, and I will say, if um, if I am the only one listening who thought in loco parentis was going to mean crazy parents, uh, <laughs> I'll be I'll be disappointed. So what? So so <laughs> sorry. Um, so yeah. So final thoughts, guys. What what did we overall think of uh, Black Christmas? No, I like I liked it quite a bit. This is a I think this is a really interesting early slasher flick. Um, it really interests me that it came out of Canada, which I'm like, well, that's odd. Uh, I always forget. Is John Carpenter Canadian? I don't think so. No, I think he's, he's, I think he's, he's from Yorker. Kentucky. He's he's from Kentucky originally. I think he's from Kentucky. Okay, <laughs> originally. <laughs> Um, it's just really interesting to see the early parts of that genre come in and without the meanness that would later be kind of a hallmark of the genre. But besides that, I think it's a really interesting, well done movie with, you know, just some minor flaws. So I I really like it. And I think it's uh, rare to find a movie uh, from 42 years ago that you can like not just out of respect, but also be legitimately scared by. I should say a horror movie from 42 years ago that you can like not just out of respect, but be legitimately scared by. I think horror is a uh, genre where stuff gets copied so often that even if something is kind of revolutionary for its time, when you if you are going back and finding some of the uh, – more proto versions of slasher movies or whatever subgenre you're looking for, you're going to f- see stuff that may be very good and you respect it, but because you've seen it a hundred other times in other movies, it's very hard for it to have that same effect. And uh, I was impressed both how scary this movie was, how effective it was, and how it still felt pretty revolutionary uh, 42 years later. Like this, the some of the really good stuff in here. No one has bothered to take, uh, which is great for me as someone who watched this movie for the first time, but feels like it is almost right for, hey, let's try this idea again. Yeah, it doesn't feel overly pillaged uh, like a lot of these movies do. Uh, A a lot of uh, 
sort of proto horror movies feel pillaged like all the great ideas were taken out of them and put into 10 other movies um which is just how art works but you know um but yeah i think the sort of simplicity of it is its greatest strength and i've said this before but this is one of the few movies like i can maybe think of a dozen movies that actually scare me and i've seen like hundreds of horror movies and this is one of them and a lot of it has to do with just cold, hard, competent techniques. There's a really great score that involves, uh, you know, uh, the the composer um, put like forks and weights and stuff on the the strings of the piano, give it a sort of like distorted, strange sound, which is like something that you hear more in like, you know, more modern horror movies done digitally. But in this case, he just did it analog and it sounds amazing those that the score really creeps me out the performances and the phone calls really creep me out and the billy dash agnes when he finally gets revealed uh i think it's just it's it's an amazingly creepy horror movie as a christmas movie i think we it's it's hard to a lot of the a lot of the the, the, touch, the touches are kind of subtle like the most broad scene is uh, when Barb gets murdered while the carolers are singing and, you know, the sort of juxtaposition of the Christmas lights and the Christmas decorations while, um, you know, they're hunting for a girl that's already dead. A lot of the stuff is more subtle uh, and there aren't like, you know, Silent Night, Deadly Night where there's an actual dude in a Santa costume running around murdering people. Yeah, and that is and that is kind of what I expected. <laughs> I expected yeah. more Christmassy uh, stuff. Uh, I expected a Santa suit killer. So maybe that's why people were so offended in 1984 when Silent Night, Deadly Night came out, because uh, they'd never seen the desecration of their most holy figure before. Yep. And I was going to say, this movie is uh, this movie does not have a killer Santa. It defies expectations at, at every turn, I think. And that's why it deserves to be seen again and again. And I do watch it every Christmas season. Yeah, that's a perfect capper. Uh this was a lot of fun, guys. Thank you so much for joining us, Joseph. Uh, where can people find you? Oh, you can find me at Twitter at Joseph Finn. That's J-O-S-E-P-H-F-I-N-N. You can find me at most social media on that. I'm on the Facebook. Uh, you can find the Dissolve group if you are a connoisseur of excellent uh, film discussion. Uh, you can check out our uh, Facebook group there. We are at uh, The Dissolve. Um, you can search for us. I forget the exact name for it right now. Um, I do not have my own webpage, but you can find me on the Twitter. Check me out. I'm usually ranting about something. Uh, yeah, and check out his podcast. Try, try, try it. You'll like it. We'll include a link uh, to that in the show notes as well. Oh, of course, I should mention my own podcast. Duh. Yeah, uh, we try it. You'll <laughs> we like it. Uh, we, it comes out every couple of weeks. We uh, usually choose a theme, and then we talk about a book and a movie around that theme. You can find us at uh, try. Uh, pardon me. You can find uh, our website at tryandlikeit.blogspot.com. Uh, if you haven't heard it yet, it is fantastic. So definitely. Uh, check it out, and you will enjoy it. Did you guys get that? Yes. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, well, so, yeah. So, uh, next week is our final. Uh, we may have tipped our hat that we've already recorded it, but next week is our final Christmas horror movie. It is New Year's Evil, which is a canon movie, uh, which we didn't know until right before we recorded it. Uh, we did pre-record it. That should drop uh like yeah like i don't know if i'm cool enough to pull off that should drop but that will release 
on December 31st. Uh, so something to, to listen to as you get wasted and try to kiss strangers at midnight. Um, yeah, thank you very much for joining us, Joseph. And uh, yeah, it was a blast. Can't wait to have you back on, probably for a musical month. Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait to be uh, just verbally abused all musical month whenever that happens. <laughs> hey, we found you a guest that hates musicals, Peter. So... Brandon is going to be your guest that is on your side for one of those weeks. Oh, God. <laughs> My tag team. How about we just yeah. have everybody on one episode and we talk about all musicals generally. <laughs> yeah, just have all like uh, 12 or 15 guests. <laughs> so, yeah. So, everyone listening, uh, have a Merry Christmas. This should release on December 24th. So, hopefully you're having a great time uh, with your loved ones and your family and your friends, and uh, while um, this won't be the last episode you hear in 2016, this is the last episode that Peter and I are recording in 2016. We will we will not be recording again for four whole weeks, which is the long – we have only taken a week off since we started the show in the beginning of April. So uh, if you come back on January uh, 17th, which will be the next uh, new episode that we'll record on the 10th for Jim Cotta. <laughs> for for motherfucking ninja motherfucking ninja month which we'll announce more in next week's episode uh american ninja yeah american ninja no we're not we're not we're not doing that one we are doing a canon ninja film don't worry joseph but if we sound super <laughs> rusty uh the next time uh you hear us in 2017 it's because peter and i are planning uh to not speak for the next 4 weeks like silent monks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, thank you very much, guys. And uh, it has been a pleasure. I will uh, catch you guys in 2017. Happy holidays, everyone. Good Happy night. Holidays. The boys of the NYPD chorus And the bells are ringing out for Christmas Day. listening to we love to watch if you want to get in touch with us please reach out to us at either our website wltwpodcast.com or our facebook group facebook.com backslash we love to watch and uh yeah reach out to us give us some feedback give us some support uh, suggest movies for the show all that we are also available on soundcloud tune in stitcher and itunes thanks for listening